Welcome to the Australian Chiropractors Association podcast. The ACA is the peak body representing chiropractors in Australia. Hosted by ACA President, Dr. Anthony Coxon, these podcasts explore the science, art, philosophy, and politics of chiropractic, as well as reviewing the latest research and discussing how chiropractors can strive for excellence in practice. Welcome to the Australian Chiropractors Association podcast. I'm your podcast host, Anthony Coxon. For those that know me well, you'll probably know that I'm a keen cyclist. And indeed, my son is also a cyclist who races at a somewhat elite level. Now, I've enjoyed many years of uh, riding uh, with Joel, um, but I'm also becoming wiser as I'm getting older. Conversation pre-ride often goes something like, Hey, Dad, do you want to hit the Dandenongs tomorrow? To which I normally reply, is it a recovery ride? You see, I'm smart enough to know that I shouldn't be trying to hold his wheel when he's on a full gas training session. Not that I could anyway. And he's smart enough to know the importance of recovery in his training. Now, we all know as practitioners the value of rest. Healing and repair is particularly important for health and well-being. But the whole art and science of recovery has become far more sophisticated over the last years and decades. Recently, I attended the College of Chiropractic Pediatrics annual conference, and one of the speakers, Dr. Peter Garbett, did a great presentation on the training injury prevention paradox. I'm delighted that Pete has agreed to share his information on the ACA podcast today. Now, a bit of background about Pete. Father, chiropractor, author, and adventurer. Pete Garbett runs a multidisciplinary practice in Canberra, having graduated from Macquarie University in 1995. He holds two postgraduate qualifications in sports chiropractic, a Master of Chiropractic Sports Science at Macquarie University 2000 and ICCSP from 2006. In 2015, Pete became the first chiropractor to be admitted to the Fellow of the Australian Sports Federation. I'll say that again too. In 2015, Pete became the first chiropractor to be admitted as a fellow of the Australian Sports Medicine Federation and also the first person to stand up paddleboard on Australia's five glacial lakes during a 13-hour hike slash paddle through the Australian Alps. In his spare time, if he has any, he also happens to be the president of the International Sports Chiropractic Federation. So don't call him busy because busy people don't have this much fun, apparently. Hi, Pete. Welcome to the ACA podcast. Hello, Anthony, and uh, thanks very much for having me. Look, before we get into the nitty-gritty of uh, training load and recovery, tell me a little bit about your um, stand-up paddleboard on the uh, Glacial Lakes. That sounds amazing. Oh, mate, it was uh, it was fantastic. I, uh, I've been into stand-up paddleboarding and racing stand-up paddleboards for a number of years, and uh, I one of the things that there is in the sport is an inflatable stand-up paddleboard, which is quite a robust board. I've uh, I've raced my stand-up board over in uh, Canada down the Bow River and also taken it onto the uh, some of the beautiful glacial lakes in around Banff, and that's what inspired me to check out Australia's glacial lakes. So you throw a, throw it on your back and hike up through the mountains, and uh, yeah, fantastic uh, little journey. So after all that hiking, I've I'm just got this image of you, you know, blowing into some inflatable uh, thing. I'm assuming you have some sort of uh, battery-operated um, inflator or at least a, a kick-type a kick inflator, do you? Um, actually, it's a, a standard uh, pump where you're standing and then using your hands to 
pump up and down. And, right. Um, so it's around about a yeah, five-minute uh, exercise of vigorous uh, work to get the board ready to take on the water each time. So that was somewhat frustrating each time was pump it up, get out for a paddle, come back, wet all the air out to uh, know you have to do it another four, four times. Well, it does sound like an amazing adventure, that's for sure. But um, today we're here to talk about training load and why it's important for athletes to manage this well. So training load is the athlete's currency. Uh, it's how they're measuring what they're doing. Um, it's how they plan out their week. It's how the coaches let them know what, what, what's going on. And you, you'll find that as you go through various levels of, of athletic endeavour, there's various levels of scrutiny on training load. Um, there's a range of variables that it can have from you know, distance to time, speed, weight or intensity. And the, the literature is providing us with more and more evidence of the dangers of mismanaging training load and not just having too much load but also not enough load to be prepared to do the activity that you're uh, hoping to do. So it's, um, it's a big topic in, in literature over recent years that's helping us to try and keep athletes um, – on the field and injury-free. In your presentation that I sat through, which was fantastic, by the way, you talked about the sweet spot for training load. Um, can you go into that in a little bit more detail? Yeah, sure. Um, so the amount of training where we can see an improvement in performance requires a certain amount of load beyond what the body normally endures. Um, you know, that's where we create a training response and we see our improvements in performance, our, our speed, our strength, and, and so forth. The sweet spot's about um, the fact that if we exceed our body's capacity to recover between these tra training bouts, we start to see illness and injury creep in. So the sweet spot's to be able to maximise the load whereby we get those training effects and we get bigger, stronger, faster, um, but without overloading to a point where our body starts to break down at a rate where it can't recover. Yeah, so you mentioned, and in fact, that's what I was thinking about, that bigger, stronger, faster um, uh, goal that any athlete is trying to work towards. The whole thing is that they do have to load up their training intensity o over time to achieve those improvements. Um, is there a sort of standard or um, evidence-based way where people can progressively work through their loads, or is this something that's particularly individual? Uh, well, that's a really interesting question because, um, you know, in my experience over the many years with running training and, and running in particular, because there's a lot of measurement there, and uh, you've probably noticed it in cycling that the old adage that was brought out was, uh, you know, you shouldn't increase your training body more than 10% a week. And, you know, you, you look at that and you say, okay, that, that sounds fair. It's a nice round figure. We can all work with 10%. Uh, we're in a decimal society. Um, and, and off we go without questioning it. It, the nice thing was that in recent years, Tim Gabbard, who's the industry leader in this area of uh, training, dose response and recovery, actually started to look into the figures and did some uh, research into it and found that once we go beyond a 10% increase, um, we see a massive increase in injury incidence. So that 10% a week, which we've, you know, has been in and around the place for many years, it looks like that, that was pretty much spot on. So you met, I, I did actually see the um, a reference to Tim Gabbett's uh, research. Uh, I'm assuming it's no relation. I think from memory it was a slightly different spelling of the surname. <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, yeah, no, quite, quite different. I, don't, I haven't even met Tim, but, uh, yeah, very clever fella. And it's, it's nice to see 
like you know, industry world leading research coming out of Australia. We, what we'll do is we might um, put a link for Tim Gabbett's research with this podcast so that for people who wish to have a, a go into this in a little bit more detail can certainly do so. So uh, when we're talking about load, what are the specific variables we need to consider and, and how do we me- measure these? I mean, I'm thinking of uh, of Joel. He sort of very much is a, you know about power. So he has a uh, his uh, Garmin that sits on the front of his uh, bike there and he's training load has a lot to do with you know different sort of power um, uh, measures what are some of the other things that are that are measured and what's important what's not important or is it all important yeah look this is um we, we do live in a wonderful age right now we can measure just about anything and you know joel will have a, a little sensor on his uh on the crank of his bike no doubt which is giving him a wattage output um and We've got so many wearable devices that um, you know your Apple Watch will be letting you know exactly when you need to move and how much uh, work you've done and all the rest of it. So there's a lot of ways that we can measure what we're doing over and above you know the old how many kilometres, how fast, and things like that. One of the interesting things that's again been borne out through the research though is that the very low tech perceived energy rating or effort. Um, appears to stand up as just as accurate as many of these other fancy measures through our electronic devices. So from a measurement perspective, um, just measuring effort and putting that down on a uh, a spreadsheet can be um, just as accurate to let us know how we're mapping along there. Uh, One of the variables that... Sorry, go on. So just on that that question of a perceived effort, I know when I've done sort of... um, Testing with exercise physiologists and, and in um, in a sort of a, uh, a cycling environment where I'm hooked up to a, a stationary bike, one of the things at various times they'll bring across the board and put it in front of me, and it'll be a a number one to twenty, and they're usually associated with um, facial expressions. So so you know a four might be a big smile, a one might be you know breaking a bit of sweat, and you know anything they're getting into the mid teens is certainly you know. Uh, an unhappy or a struggling kind of face. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, so, so what you're describing there is actually a Borg scale. And the Borg scale has been shown to be quite accurate as far as predicting heart rate. And so that's where you'll, you'll you add a multiplier to that. I think it's a multiplier by 10. And whatever's on your, whatever number you've selected there is going to be fairly close. So the Borg scale often runs from 6 to 20. Um, and we get to see how our um, heart rate is. But just simply saying, you know, I, I worked hard and out of 10, that was a 7 out of 10 session. Right. Or, um, you know, when you're cycling, all right, I want you to put an effort that is 4 out of 5 here. We, we tend to actually be a lot more accurate than you might think in right. evaluating those efforts. And so whilst your Borg scale is very specific for trying to indicate and measure or predict heart rate, um, just a simple, you know, out of five or out of ten perceived effort uh, can give us a a pretty good measure of how we're going. And so one of the very simple ways that you'll find, again, some low-tech measurement scales, you know, we're going to say we did, we went out for a ride for uh, three hours and two hours of that was at a seven out of ten intensity there was half an hour that was a 9 out of 10 intensity and then there was, you know, an hour and a half that was at a, you know, 4 to 6 out of 10. And you actually get a, a number that you can actually put in your little uh, spreadsheet there, which is this was the 
load rating for that training session. Right. And I guess a, a, a coach and maybe a health practitioner might correlate that with heart rate and wattage and time and speed and distance and all those other things just to, uh, to monitor how well or an athlete is doing in terms of their, their progress. Yeah, and this is where you, know, you have a look at the um, you know, ex- expanse of uh, people that we tend to see. And if you're at a high level, then you know what? You've got the GPS on and you've got you know, all the bells and whistles and your coach is getting very specific measures and they're, you know, we're using biometric markers as well, um, you know, blood lactate levels and so forth to see where we're at. But you know, the average clinician you know, in day-to-day practice who has the recreational athlete in can use something as simple as just that energy rating, you know, how hard was that training session, and start to map, map and help their patients stay out of injury just by some simple mapping like that. So sticking with that idea of the um, training load equating, or in this example, equating to perceived effort, um, how do you put that recovery sort of phase in? Is there a formula for that? Um, there is actually. Um, and so this is where we've seen some good research coming out of the AOS in recent years. Um, again, Tim Gabbard's been involved, Peter Blanche, uh, Mick Drew, some very clever physios out there. And um, they have what's called an acute chronic workload ratio. And with that, what we have a look at is what the um, average weekly workload might have been over the previous four weeks and then the relationship to how that matches the current week's workload. So if you're looking at progressing and you know, having a hard week, having a, a, a recovery week and so forth, you want to be looking at a ratio that's a, no more than, um, uh, I think it's one and a half uh, to one that, that's on the, the paper that uh, Mick Drew's put out there. But um, that, the acute chronic workload ratio becomes quite predictive of injury across a whole range of different sports. And right. most people will you know, say, well, my sport's a little bit different. It turns out that that actually holds up whether you're a basketballer or a soccer player, um, a runner, a swimmer. Um, yeah, it's been shown to hold up and across different levels of sport too, from elite down to uh, recreational. I think we'll add that uh, scale certainly to the um, the show notes for the po- uh, for the podcast as well. That sounds really interesting. So talking about the comparison between the recreational athlete versus the elite athlete, Obviously, the elite athlete, they're going to be monitoring their progress in a far more sophisticated uh, way. Um, As you said, whether it's blood lactate levels or or, or other more sophisticated uh, monitors. But is there any other different considerations? For example, does that, um, you know, acute chronic workload um, uh, scale you were talking about before, does that apply in a different way to the recreational athlete versus the elite athlete? Um, Look. Good, good question because we quite often see ourselves measuring, you know, all the research is on elite athletes and that's where we're measuring things from. And not surprisingly, our recreational athletes will quite often look to emulate the training program of an elite athlete as well. Uh, I spent some time, uh, some years doing triathlon and that was certainly one of the big things there was, um, you know, let's find this elite triathlete's training program and we'll, we'll do that. And the same thing happens in running and no doubt you'll see that in cycling as well. Um, and I tend to feel that our recreational athlete is actually a high-risk athlete from training load management issues. So 
one of the things that differentiates them is that our professional athletes have a team of people around them yeah. that are monitoring how things are going on a very, very close level. They have people taking certain responsibilities for them, such as food, shelter, what they're going to do in the next day. And that brings me to an area where I really think that we as practitioners um, need to be acutely aware of one of these load variables that can impact our, particularly our recreational athletes. And that's psychological stress because that becomes a load that the body needs to weather. Mm. And so that might be you know, making the mortgage payment. It might be some home stress. It might be some work stress. Uh, if we're a student, it might be exams coming up. And in amongst all that, there's competition stress. And so being able to identify times where there's high stress from whichever area it might be gives an opportunity to mitigate some of that load, and if you consider stress as a load, um, through perhaps a lighter training session or yeah. at very least not going out for that personal best on that session when you know it's the week where you know, your daughter's had a, a relationship breakup and you know the, the house is in, in turmoil um, over that. So just being aware of these different variables that come in there and that the, our recreational athletes are actually more susceptible to some of these than the professional athletes are um, means that you need to have a look at it. Okay, you, you might be able to emulate that physical training load that the professional athlete's doing, but how are you managing the rest of your life as well? And that's where, you know, as I say, as pra- private practice practitioners, we need to be on the ball identifying this. I can certainly relate to that, not only with patients uh, that I have that are recreational athletes, but from my own um, experience and again comparing it to, to my son who uh, yeah he's kind of busy I guess but uni student um, has all the, the luxuries of living at home you know he's got plenty of opportunities to, to recover um, and I know with my cycling that for me it has to be uh, an experience of unwinding down you know busy in practice busy with ACA I just go out and smash myself every time on on the bike. It's just no recovery, and I'm just bouncing cortisol all over the place. So, um, so yes, that that yeah. being kind to your body uh, attitude is is I guess important for everyone. Yeah, absolutely, and that, that's the thing. You know, you, I would suggest, you know, Anthony, from you in particular, you know, the week of the national conference is not the week to have your highest training load. No. You know, be kind to yourself on the bike that week, and so because you've got so much load elsewhere. Yes, indeed. Um, energy being expended. So, getting back to the the, the athlete, I mean, obviously, um, the goal in terms of performance for them is to have consistent training and to not have it broken up with injury or indeed illness. I guess when we're talking about load, that's the the ultimate aim, isn't it? Absolutely, and this again, you know. We're very fortunate here in Australia to have the Australian Institute of Sport who've done some great research on how we manage our athletes and certainly um, more data that's came up, come out through there shows that the athletes that tend to see the most success are the ones that have the most consistent training. And so balancing that, that load recovery ratio so that we can keep training and that, that means putting in the lighter sessions as well as the heavy sessions and putting them in at the right time and monitoring um, how we're managing our overall load means we can continue to train and continue to improve. You mentioned uh, earlier about sort of um, psychological stresses. Um, do you use any kind of 
questionnaires to, to monitor psychological stress or indeed physiological stress with your clients? Yeah, so from a physiological stress perspective, that, that acute chronic load ratio is probably the, uh, the easiest model to use there. From a psychological load perspective, I'll use things like the, uh, the Kessler 10 or the DAS, which is the Depression Anxiety Stress Scale, but you also don't even need to be using you know, high-level measures. A patient-specific scale, which has on there, you know, just list your enjoyment levels of you know, being at home, being at work, your training, um, also the difficulty levels of each of those. And over time, you can start to see measures where, where that is very specific to that particular patient. Yeah. And what, what you're looking for there are spikes within that, uh, yeah, there's the yellow flags form as well, which brings out a little bit of that too, uh, which then incorporates their, their attitudes towards injury and so forth. So some of these different measures we can use within the clinic, and sometimes that's for a conversation there. Sometimes it's a referral out to, to work with a uh, psychologist to help the athlete to work through that area. And when you discuss it with them regarding this is how we manage the different parts of the load within your training and keep you training well, and we might bring in a psychologist to help manage that side of it so that you're utilising appropriate load management strategies and building resilience within that to allow you to keep training, you're able to make a connection there that isn't um, all that confronting. It's an interesting dynamic, isn't it? Working with uh, people, your, your standard patients. So often I'm encouraging people to get more active, to do more with their body, to experience more with the body. When it comes to working with athletes, and, and in my practice, it's probably more the recreational athlete that I see more of than the elite athlete. But the conversation is still often the same in that rather than encouraging them to do more, it's about rest longer, graduate back to activity, don't get back into things too soon, don't risk re-injuring yourself. It, it really is interesting working with the psychology of the athlete. Absolutely. I mean, the, the competitive mindset says always do better. Do better than yesterday. Do better than yourself. Do better than those around you. Uh, it, it's what drives people to compete. And, and quite often that, that's the goal that keeps them on keeps them training and so it's a useful thing it's not all, all bad but it's a matter of under, giving them that understanding that you know as we said before the unbroken training leads to better performance and the way to achieve unbroken training is to have appropriate recovery because that's actually your build phase yeah absolutely um, so finally, just in, in sort of summing up people I mean this is a really interesting uh, topic uh, and I know that there's um, podcasts and other information out there of course the ACA podcast should be the one that everyone's uh, subscribing to but uh, there are other podcasts specifically around this uh, sports stuff and recovery and other information like that and, I, and, and you mentioned at least one I remember in your um, uh, presentation uh, the other week can you perhaps share that with the ACA listeners yeah so uh, Christian Thorberg uh, has a great podcast on the BJSM podcast where he's talking about uh, optimal training load. Uh, so that's a great one to listen to if we're talking training loads. Um, you know, outside of the ACA podcast, you know, which obviously uh, is a must for anybody on their, uh, <laughs> their, their trip to or from work. Absolutely. Uh, BJSM is a great uh, opportunity as well to uh, hear some up-to-date research and you know, discussions around training load amongst other, other injury topics. 
And that's the British Journal of Sports Medicine, is it? It is the British Asia. Journal of Sports yep. Medicine. The, the current chief editor is um, Karam Khan. Right. Uh, who, yeah, with Peter Bruckner, is the uh, editor-in-chief and previous you know, the authors of uh, the key sports medicine uh, textbook. Fantastic. All right. Well, look, um, I, I'm, we'll also make that uh, link available uh, on the show notes for the um, for the podcast. But, Pete, look, I really appreciate your time today. It's been uh, really insightful and I think a really useful discussion for not only for people dealing with uh, athletes, but perhaps people just understanding uh, the whole rest and recovery uh, paradox. So thank you so much for your time today. All right, thanks very much. Uh, actually, sorry, before I go, one other area where you will see some good information on recovery is Sports Chiropractic Australia had Nikki Kirk, uh, recovery expert, not only at the annual conference in Perth last year, but he did a webinar for SCA throughout the year. So any of the SCA members will be able to access that webinar through the webinar library. Fantastic. Yes. And anyone, of course, we should um, give a little plug to, to the SCA, um, Sports Chiropractic Australia. Um, if you're interested in sports, definitely get involved with that organization and you get access to all sorts of great information. All right. Well, that's it for me. Thanks for listening. And I hope this podcast has been helpful in your quest for excellence. And I look forward to chatting with you again on our next ACA podcast. Mm-hmm.